1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Righto, well, today we're going to be talking about spiritual maturity. And I'm actually going to begin with the punchline, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. Right. So the order of the reading that we just read is there's a paragraph spelling out that the qualifications of an overseer or a bishop, a, a person who's in a recognised ministry of spiritual oversight within a church. And then there's a paragraph a- outlining the qualifications of a deacon. That's somebody who serves in, in a recognised serving ministry in the church. And then there's a paragraph that explains why these standards apply. But... I'm going to begin with that last paragraph because I don't want anyone here to just switch off because you're thinking, well, I'm not an overseer or or a bishop or a deacon and I'm not likely to be one, so I might just think about something else. Oh, what's going on out the window there? Um, So I'm going to begin with that paragraph. And in doing so, we're actually beginning with the church. Church, it tells us here, is the household of God. And yes, that does mean that we're God's family, but it means more than that. A better way of saying this is church, not the building, uh, but the gathered community of Christ uh, is the dwelling place of God, right? God doesn't choose to live in, in buildings of bricks and mortar. The living God 
lives in those who are living. The living God lives in Christians. And so we, as disciples of Jesus, are the dwelling place of God. And each local church gathering are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Right now, I've just explained what a buttress is to the kids, so you all full speed on that, but I'm going to explain it again for those who are listening to the recording. Um, so a buttress is like a foundational supporting structure. So has anyone here ever been to the Bunya Mountains? Put your hand up if you've been to the Bunyas. Right, there's, I, I love the Bunyas. It, it's beautiful up there. In fact, this morning it actually felt like we were on the Bunyas with the, the fog and the humidity and stuff. But, but up there on the Bunyas, there's some, some really big trees. And some of those really big trees have what we call buttress roots. And so the roots actually start growing a part of the way up the trunk and slope down, and it gives that tree stability. Um, I've got a picture up there of some buttresses in some, of some buildings. So if you build a brick wall, a big brick wall, if you just leave it as it is, it'll fall over. It needs a buttress, either an internal wall or a frame to attach it to it, or a buttress. And there's a couple of buttresses here. Um, I didn't know we were going to be here until yesterday. Um, otherwise, we could have just decided to go outside and have a look at some buttresses out on the church out here. There's some big white pillars on the side, but, but they're built wide because not only are they pillars, they are buttresses as well. And, and the Christian church is a pillar, it is a buttress of the truth. So an amazing mystery of the gospel is that Christ has done everything that we need for us to be saved. God came to the earth as a human being. God revealed to men. He suffered and died to save us from our sins and he's raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father in glory and all who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. He's done everything. This is the mystery that has been revealed to us. This is the mystery that has been made known. God has done all of this. But there's a further mystery. The further mystery is that God chooses to live in us by his Holy Spirit. And further to this mystery is that the message of the gospel, God has done all of this, but getting that message out there, he's left in the hands of his people. As God works through us, we take that message out into the world. He's put this message into the hands of the church to proclaim it to the nations and to proclaim it locally. And in this regard, the Christian church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Every local Christian church, our little fellowship here, Shed Church over on the Cecil Plains, is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And if the gospel is not being proclaimed in the world, if the gospel is not being proclaimed in our town and in our district, that would be us failing to uphold the word of God's salvation so that it can be heard and believed. But it's not only a matter of words. A church being the pillar and buttress of the truth is more than proclaiming the gospel. It's living the gospel. If the living God 
is living inside of us, the church, then how we live reflects God. Or more to the point, Christ living in us reflects God out of our own lives. And that's why what we've been reading here this morning is about spiritual maturity. As we continue to live with God in us, and as we mature as Christians, the way that we behave reflects more and more who Christ is. And so, as I read the qualifications of these officers in the church, the office of overseer and deacon, most of those qualifications are about spiritual maturity. And that's something that, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we should all be growing towards. We should all be growing towards spiritual maturity. It's not only those special few people who are going to be our leaders. And, and in, in these qualifications, there's a tiny little bit about spiritual gifting, but most of it is about spiritual maturity. And so the people who we set aside in the church as recognised leaders in the church must be people who are demonstrating spiritual maturity. But it's not only the leaders. This is a message for all of us. It's about every one of us growing in faith and growing closer to God and maturing in Christ. Uh, we recognise true spiritual maturity in other people and we follow their godly example to increase Christ-likeness in ourselves. Right, so let's go back to the beginning. It's become almost a popular sport, not only among the godless, but also among Christians. It's become quite a popular sport to have a disdain for any form of church structure or authority within the church. Uh, some folk like to decide for themselves what they want to believe. Some folk don't like to be held, account when they, held to account when they believe something wrong or when they do something wrong. Some feel that they can be a Christian and perhaps be a better Christian uh, without being a member of a church. And they look back to what they call the biblical model of church, um, where they would just see people meeting in their, their own homes with no structure and no authority. But, but to call that a biblical model of church is selective. Um, at best, it's a bit naive, and at worst, it's deceitful, mainly for the person who believes it, that, that they deceive themselves. If I believe that a good model of church is to be a church with no authority, no structure, no accountability, to be a church where I can be a Christian out on my own without the interdependence of me depending on other Christians and them depending on me and without us having this interdependence of the body of Christ and without having to fellowship with those other pesky Christians, if that's my picture of church, then I've deceived myself of what the biblical model of church really is. The name itself, church, in the Greek it's ecclesia. It means the gathered ones. It's, it's a coming together in the name of Jesus. And in some of the earliest writings in the New Testament, in the very first generation of the Christian church, it talks very clearly about the role of certain officers within the church. And we read some of it today. Um, there's the officers, 
the office of the episkopos. That's the Greek word which we translate as overseer or guardian or bishop. It refers to a church leader in a local Christian church. You know, we might talk about bishops today and we think of a bloke with a funny pointy hat and with, with these fancy robes on. But biblically, a bishop is a locally appointed church leader, someone who has been appointed to have spiritual oversight in that church. And we're going to talk a bit more about that shortly. A second office, which isn't in today's reading, but it's in other spots, is the office of the presbyteros, meaning elder, that very early in the church, elders were appointed in local churches. And, and sometimes the roles of elders and overseers tend to overlap, um, but not completely. And thirdly, the off, there's the office of the diakonos or the deacon or the servant. Um, that was established. And, and so this is about a person being set aside for very practical service within the church, which would then free up the preachers and the overseers so that they could do what they were called to do. And when it came to these recognised offices of leadership within the church, whether the office was for something like spiritual oversight or whether it was for something which was more about practical service, spiritual maturity was essential for, for all of these leaders. So Paul writes, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, when we think about aspiring, um, the Greek word there that's used for aspire actually means stretching out, reaching out for something. And we might think, you know, some folk, they really crave positions of authority. And, and they see positions within the church even as an achievement or an accomplishment that makes them to be seen as a person of importance. And, of course, they feel, yes, and, of course, I deserve that because I am so important. But, but in this case, it, it's not in a bad sense. It, it's about stretching out, reaching out to achieve a sense of call. So the person is being called by God to a certain job and they step up to, and reach out and strive to do the job that God has called them to do. It's, it's not about a sense of personal importance and, and to aspire to the office of overseer it is a very noble task. There's not a lot of thanks in it. There's no earthly reward in it. It's a chance to serve God in what can sometimes be a very tough and a very thankless sort of a job. And when it comes to the qualifications of an overseer or a deacon, it's primarily about spiritual maturity. And I think that the ability to teach is probably the only one that's really talking about a gifting rather than a spiritual maturity. And as we look at that list that, that's up there, that I've put up there, you can see a fair bit of, of those things overlap between overseer and deacon. And it's not a complete list. It's, it's not like a deacon can't be double-tongued, but an overseer can. And it's not like an overseer can't be violent, but a deacon can. It, it's, that would be a nonsense. This is about spiritual maturity. And it's not a complete list. And this is what spiritual maturity looks like 
And this is what you and I, every one of us, should be growing towards. It's to be above reproach. It's to be tested and proved blameless. Now, if we are truly the dwelling place of God, if the church is to be the buttress of truth, then integrity is everything. Complete honesty, complete truth. We do not work in the field of rumour or innuendo or hearsay. We don't work with theories or conspiracies. The church is the buttress of truth. Christian man was, was at work and he got a phone call um, while his boss happened to be in the room at the time and, and the person asked if they could speak to his boss. And, and he hands the phone, he says, oh, it's for you, that so-and-so wants to talk to you. He says, tell them I'm not here. He says, you tell him, hands him the phone. And um, after the boss gets off the phone, he tears strips off that employee and, and, and he says, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. And from that day on, that employee became the most trusted of his workers. Integrity is everything. And there's been instances in this very town where a person whose integrity has been a little bit questionable, a bit iffy, and yet they've become a pastor or an overseer in a church. Now, that sort of thing should never happen. I talked to another Christian about this once, and their response was, yeah, I know he's not a perfect Christian. He, He's what I call a carnal Christian. You know, he, he loves Jesus. He might be a bit two-faced, but that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. And if it's not okay for a leader, it's not okay for you. It's not okay for, for any of us. Spiritual maturity means that we will be totally above reproach. It means that I won't fudge the logbook even to get home, because that has no integrity. It means that I won't be creative with my deductions at tax time, because that isn't the truth. It isn't integrity. And as God's people, we must be of complete integrity. We're the dwelling place of God. We are the buttress of truth. And that's why a person who is spiritually mature will be above reproach, tested and prove blameless. We're to be monogamous, only one wife. Right? So it's not saying that you have to have have to be married, but if you're married, just stop at one, hey? One'll do. I'm not sure why anyone would want to have more than one. But uh, I'm happy with my current wife, Robin, anyway. Um, I might just stop right now. Should be happy to be married, one man, one woman, for life. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, dignified. Right? All of that means that we will have an orderly life. We don't act rashly. We think things through. Hospitable. That means we are a welcoming people. We open up our homes. We, we have people over for lunch. We, we have people stay over. That's what it means to be hospitable. Able to teach. Now, as I said before, this is probably the main one that is a gift as well as spiritual maturity. Right? Not every person 
will be a gifted teacher. Um, but all of us, at some level, as we mature in Christ and as we read God's word and as we've been learning from other teachers, all of us should be able to teach at some level. Right? It doesn't mean that every single overseer is going to be a gifted teacher. What it means is they know the faith and they're able to explain their faith and give a reason for why they believe. And, it, and it's important for an overseer to be able to do that because one of the jobs of the overseer we discover in Titus is to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. By the way, that doesn't make a person very popular when you have to rebuke somebody over sound doctrine. But it's something that, as, a, as an overseer, that's what one has to do. Spiritual maturity, that means that there'll be no drunkenness. Uh, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with grog. Right? Now, it's, it's not saying that you can't drink any alcohol. It's drunkenness that is the issue. And um, that is something that Christians should not do. Not violent or not being a bully, but gentle, being considerate, displaying forbearance. Not quarrelsome. Now, we all know someone, and often that we might know somebody even in the church, who's always looking for a dispute, right? They, they always want to focus on the things that are contentious to try and have a bit of an argument about something. And some folk aren't happy unless they're doing that, and they don't feel that they're being good Christians unless they can be arguing about something. But, but if we, as the church, together, are spiritually mature, and if we are the buttress of truth and upholding the gospel of Christ, seriously, there's nothing to be contentious about. The spiritually mature are not greedy. We're not lovers of money. We're not materialistic. We're not always trying to get more. And our spiritual maturity will be demonstrated in how we run our families. They'll have obedient children. They'll manage their own household well. Now, so when, when one's children are not yet of age and they are subject to the authority of the parents, the spiritually mature step up in their role as parents and they command respect with all dignity. Now, there will come a time when our children grow up and you might be surprised to know how young they are when they actually have grown up. And traditionally, it's actually around about the age of 12 or 13 where a, a child begins to, that, by that stage, they know what's right and what's wrong. They've been taught how to live by then. And by, by the age of about 12 or 13, they're already starting to make their own decisions. And so if we haven't taught our children well, Start young and teach them well. If we haven't taught them by the time they get to 12 or 13, then, then it's going to be hard to rein them in when they run amok. But while they are still under our authority, especially at a young age, a godly parent will be controlling their family. And in the case of an overseer, basically what Paul is saying, hey, if they can't manage their own families, how can they, how can they care for God's church? 
Now, this, this might seem a bit strange, but I, I think back, to, back in the day, uh, it was quite common that, that the pastor's kids were the most feral kids in town. Did anybody ever encounter that in, in their town where the pastor's kids were the most feral in town? Now, I, I don't know if that's still the way it is. Put your hand up if you're a pastor's kid. You sort of are, Robin. I know you are, Andrew. Uh, yeah, it's just sticking up just a little bit. Jake's out at Sunday school. So you can decide for yourselves if pastor's kids are still the most feral in town. Um, hopefully they've grown out of it by now. But I actually haven't noticed that as much recently. But back in the day, some of the pastor's kids were absolute ferals. Um, they're not to be a recent convert. All right, so basically, this is about spiritual maturity. It takes time to learn. It takes time to know and to experience the gospel. And it takes time to learn and know and experience ministry. Let's be frank, it, it usually takes time for the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. So when you first become a Christian, there might be some major changes that take place in your life. And God in his grace and mercy might totally transform you in some areas. But as you get older and older, you're going to keep realising that there's more and more areas in your life where you need transformation still. Places where the fruit of the Spirit need to still be growing in your life. Robin's nanny's here with us this morning. I don't know. Have you gone to sleep, Nanny? She's gone to sleep. She's 101. And you know what? She's still learning and she's still growing in Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit are still developing in her. There's things that she still needs to ask to repent of. I can say this because she's asleep. She still needs to repent of. And, and uh, now, now she's looking at me. <laughs> so... It usually takes time for these things. And so a brand new Christian, they might be somebody who's, who's full of enthusiasm. They might be someone who's, who's full of vim and vigour, but, but they might not have the necessary experience to oversee God's church. Paul actually says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. Now, that puffed up with conceit is all one word in the Greek. It's typhothes, which, which basically means to become insanely arrogant, right? It's arrogance so extreme that you'd look at it and say, that, that person's out of their tree. They're insanely arrogant and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Because that's, that's, the, that's how Satan fell. Satan was filled with arrogance and said, God, I'm going to take over from you. Mine is the kingdom, mine is the glory. I'm going to take over from you. And now the only thing that Satan has in front of him is condemnation and judgment. And that's why we don't raise people too quickly up into leadership. They must be well thought of by outsiders, non-Christians. Right. So when we talk about outsiders, we're... We're talking about people who are not part of the church, people who are not Christians. Strangely enough, uh, because Christians are to be distinct from the world, some Christians then see it as a feather in their cap if they can be 
extra offensive to people out in the world. This should not be so. Christians are not to be unnecessarily offensive. And the reputation that we have in, in our dealings in the larger community, we should always be well regarded. The spiritually mature and, and, and those who are to become leaders in the church are to be well thought of by outsiders. They must be respected people in the community, not just within the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we change the message of the gospel so that we can keep every, everybody who's not a Christian outside the church happy. What, what we're talking about is personal conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so most of the time, through most of life, through most of our dealings with the community, the spiritually mature will have a very good reputation. There may be an odd occasion where faithfulness to God and faithfulness to God's word means that they have to go against the tide of the world and they might be unpopular because of it. But in most of daily living, because if the Holy Spirit, if by the Holy Spirit we're doing what the law requires... We will be known as a people who keep their word. We'll be known as a people who pay their bills. We will be known as a people who are trusted. We won't be known as a people who are unnecessarily offensive. We won't be known as a people who are vindictive or judgmental or unnecessarily divisive. And part of this respect we earn is simply because we're good citizens. As we saw back in chapter 2. Paul told us that we pray for all people and we pray for our kings and government and for all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is what he's talking about. The spiritually mature are not double-tongued. Um, we might say two-faced. Um, we don't say one thing and mean another. We don't say one thing to one person and say the opposite thing to another person and they're completely opposite things. In other words, we don't just tell people what they want to hear. We always speak the truth. Now, I learned a long time ago, and I do keep getting reminded of this, that when one speaks the biblical truth word of God, that means you'll upset some folk. They'll disagree with you and they'll be upset about it. And I know that some, there's some church leadership type models where people will, church leaders will only ever tell people what they want to hear. And they'll tell one person one thing and they'll tell another person another thing. And by doing that, they actually don't upset anyone. That is until those two people compare notes and go, well, no, no, he told me this. No, no, he told me the opposite. But by doing it, they try to endear themselves to everyone. But when that happens, no longer is the church a pillar and buttress of truth. And so it may cost us at times, but... We need to speak the word of God all the time. They hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. 
as Christians, everything that we do has to be in the light of the cross, has to be in light of, of the faith that we hold with a clear conscience. We believe it and we do it because Christ is central to our lives. And the final qualification for those in church leadership is to do with their spouse. Deacons are to have dignified wives, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful. Um, that, by the way, is why I'm not a deacon. Um, I'm, you can class me as an overseer. My wife, no, <laughs> she's looking at me. Ministry for those who are married is a partnership. We do not serve Christ on our own. Even if you're not married, ministry is a partnership. We, the church, do this thing together. We serve him as part of a church. But also, husbands and wives are a unit. They are a one flesh relationship who in many ways minister together. And I thank God for my wife, Robin. The, the, the ministry that we do is a joint thing. Some of you might be aware of how much Robin does. I suspect most of you don't, aren't aware. Um, she is pretty much a full-time minister herself, as well as holding down a job and as well as looking after me. But the ministry we do is a joint thing and we complement each other. And this is why it's important that a Christian should only ever marry another Christian. Because if you are joined in marriage to someone who is not a Christian, how can you partner with them in what is the most important part of life? Fellowshipping together as Christians and and worshipping God and serving God. That's the most important part of anyone's life. And how can you do that together with your spouse if you do not marry a Christian? When I was going to Bible college, there was a very real push at that time for a, what I'm going to call a professionalisation of ministers. Right? They're trying to make it so that being a minister or being a pastor is a profession just like any other job. So that as long as you're qualified for the job and as long as you know the stuff and you've got the, got the piece of paper to say you've done the studies and as long as you can do that, it doesn't really matter about your family at all. It does matter. It matters a lot. When one is called to leadership in the church, it's not a job. It's not a job that we try to do on our own, and it's certainly not a professional thing. And for all of us who are married here in this church, husbands and wives together should be growing together, and you should be becoming more and more spiritually mature together, loving one another and upholding one another. It's a real blessing. Righto. So that's what true spiritual maturity looks like. And when you think about that and reflect on, on the church today, 
it's a bit sad, really, that the state that the Christian church is in sometimes. We're in an era where the search for church leaders often focuses on their managerial ability or their popularity or their entrepreneurialism or their charismatic personality or that they've been got some accomplishment in some field or other or that they have some enthusiasm or that they have the gift of gab or that they can work a crowd or that they have a history of church growth. Or we might focus on somebody who's going to toe the party line in the church or who will say nothing controversial or who will tell everybody that, oh, yes, you're right, yes, entirely right, or that they will walk the centre line on the big issues simply so they don't offend anyone. But when we look at these qualifications, pretty much the main qualification is spiritual maturity, which is holiness and Christ-likeness. And this is something that, that all of us, the whole church, should be growing in. Why? Because God lives in us. And our focus is on Christ. And because our focus is on Christ, I'm going to finish off the same way Paul did. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you now so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He who, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My friends, this is our Lord and it is for him that we live. It is for him that we are the pillar and buttress of his truth. 